This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. I'm Miles Danhausen Jr., writer and editor here at the Peninsula Pulse, and I'm joined today by Deb Fitzgerald, our editor. Deb, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for the invite. Hope your voice holds up today. You are like the this. I, I put you on this pedestal of immunity because you never get sick, and now you have gotten the last wave. I think you are the last person in Door County to get sick because you, you <laughs> right. It, it needed to evolved so much that it could actually affect you. Yeah, it was finally too much. And it, you know, for a person who constantly tells people that I've never had the flu in my life, I'm going to shut up from now on (laughs) because this is just devastating. It just laid me flat for a week now. Well, if you start hacking, we're going to leave that in on the podcast. Yeah, we will. Uh, If you hear us refer to Rachel, she is the uh, photographer and podcast producer for us. So she edits these and makes us sound better. So she's going to leave this all in so Deb can sound terrible. (laughs) (laughs) And Um, I'll try not to cough. So don't make me laugh because that's when (laughs) the cough actually comes out. Yes. Well, hopefully we get through this. We'll try and do it pretty quick for both our listeners, but more for you, Deb. I'll talk about a couple things today, a couple reports, one that came out this week in the Pulse about the new tourism granting program that Destination Door County is announcing. But first, we're going to talk about something that came out in two weeks ago in the Pulse, but we, with the holidays and everything, we weren't able to get to this on the podcast, but I think it's it's pretty valuable for us to go a little more in depth on this and, and give them a little more explanation on some of the money that came from the federal government to a couple of Door County entities. The Senate and President Biden signed in the $1.7 trillion spending package a couple of weeks ago. And in that was included $3.2 million for the Door County Granary and $900,000 for the Sister Bay Liberty Grove Fire Department to buy a new pumper truck. Mm -hmm. And this surprised everybody, including the people who got the money. So, Deb, you were on this right away. Tell us a little bit about, like, how this happened. Right. It was kind of a surprise to me because I don't really follow appropriations bills, especially omnibus appropriations bills. You don't squeeze that into all of your, around all your municipal coverage. You know, I saw the (laughs) 4,000 pages and I thought, you know, maybe later I'll read it. Yeah. You're like, well, I've got this uh, Sevastopol town meeting to cover and then I'm just going to fly to DC and meet with some senators. (laughs) So I don't, it's, it's been a while since I've actually dived into an appropriations bill. And so I was really surprised because I had thought that earmarks were a thing of the past. It just hadn't been, it hadn't been on my radar in a really long time. And so these two funding opportunities for Door County are part of, uh, there are 7,200 earmarks in this federal legislation totaling $15 billion. So that's a lot of money for local projects. Mm -hmm. And they're called different things in the Senate versus the House. But basically, they are projects that you're, well, in our case, Tammy Baldwin, Senator Tammy Baldwin is on the Senate Appropriations Committee. Mm -hmm. So her office, I connected with her office to find out how they got this list of funding opportunities, you know, and her staff said that they just cast a very wide statewide net uh, hmm. looking for projects, probably in March and April. 
of this year. Okay. Chris Hecht, who is the fire chief of the Sister Bay Liberty Grove Fire Department, said that he was alerted to the funding opportunity and decided to, you know, apply for it. He said at the time he, you know, he didn't think that there was any chance at all that they would get this money. And throughout the course of the year, he really didn't, you know, receive any notification as to where he said, you know, every once in a while he'd get an email that said that it was advancing, that it had passed, you know, through a different stage. And so when it actually did happen, it surprised him. Um, (laughs) Same with the granary people. I mean, they had applied for that earlier this year as well. They were alerted to the funding opportunity through a different source. And so they learned very shortly before, you know, they received notification that they got it. So, yeah, it was a kind of a a big surprise. And it sounded like it was one of those pipe dream types of, you know, situations. We'll try for it because to not try for it is kind of like buying a lottery ticket. You know, if you don't don't buy a ticket, you can't win. And so that was kind of like what this was about. Well, let's turn our eyes on the the Sister Bay one first. So what does that do? They get $900,000 to purchase this new pumper truck. Yes. And you were talking earlier off air with me about how, and it's a great point, like fire departments for small towns are some of the biggest expenses. Those trucks are incredibly expensive. The fire stations are incredibly expensive. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the training can add up and everything. So what does this do? Getting this, you know, on the surface, I look at it and go, why one random truck in this small community in Door County? Like, what does that do in the big picture for them? Right. Well, this truck that it would replace is about 22 years old Mm -hmm. and it's their first out truck. It's the one that responds immediately to any emergency that happens. So it gets an awful lot of use and it's vital. So they would need to borrow more than a million dollars in order mm. to be able to replace that truck. And wow. when, as a village, a Sister Bay and in the town of Liberty Grove, you know, that would be debt that they would have to take on and that taxpayers would have to pay for it because you can't not do that. You need yeah. to have your fire and emergency services equipment. So this enables them not to have to borrow that money. Yeah, They still have about $200,000, so they will have some skin in the game, which, you know, Chris thought was actually very important, you know, yeah. so it's not just handed over to them. But it really does change the future for both of those communities because they don't have to take on this debt to replace a Yeah, that's truck. like, that's a million dollars that can go to, yep. you know, any one of so many other uses and we can all find places to put money now. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> the other fire department's jealous. <laughs> oh, well, of course. I can't even imagine how that conversation went, right? Yeah. And now, now every other town is like, did you apply? Did you? Yes. <laughs> Which is, it's, it's what, you know, I'm on nonprofit boards. Whenever somebody gets awarded something, you say, did we apply for that? Why didn't we get it? You know, I've applied for grants and not gotten them and been like, God, what the heck? And you can hear that being one of the big criticisms, right? Right. Like, how did they find out about it, but we didn't find out about it? It should be an equal process. It should be a fair process. Everybody should have an opportunity to get taxpayer money in this way. Mm -hmm. So you can hear why. Well, All of the... Yeah, definitely. And and in this case, Chris Hecht was alerted to this by Diane Wessel, the interim administrator that Sister Bay was using for like on a part-time basis while they searched for a new administrator. So kind of lucky that they had somebody in an interim role who happened to have an eye on this. And that comes back to, you know, when sometimes it seems trivial, but when municipalities hire people in those roles, 
or even sometimes it's a parks director who knows how to get grants or a, f- a facilities department person who just happens to have that skill or happens to have an eye out for it. So it's really just becoming aware or having somebody who has connections to be aware of those things. Sometimes that pays off big. And you think about that if you, sometimes it seems like a lot to pay certain people in those positions, sometimes 90000 100000 $125,000 a year. But one grant at $900,000 can more than pay off for that interim administrator salary. So it's pretty sure. pretty good return on investment sometimes if mm-hmm. you get the right person. Um, and I can see lots of communities tracking uh, appropriations bills yeah. in the future. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> then on in Sturgeon Bay at the Granary, I mean, that that maybe was even more surprising probably to some people. And, you know, the Granary is this huge hot button issue, so probably infuriating to certain people to see them get that money. But explain how that caught the eye, or, or did Tammy Baldwin's office say, like, well, why they turned to that project? Because sure. they gave that $3.2 million. That's a, a big award. That is a big award, and it was the biggest one um, mm. that was awarded out of uh, the state of Wisconsin. So Tammy Baldwin brought back $255.7 million. And so the granary was the largest one. And so when you talk about that being more of a surprise project, if you look at the list of projects that were funded in this bill, it is more, you know, a fire truck, a library addition, health and human services, money for the Boys and Girls Club, a couple of tribal appropriations, you know, for health, medical center, you know, so it is things like that. There's not one of the projects that I saw that is similar to something like the granary, which is, you know, a a cultural icon, certainly. And I'm thinking that it was the uniqueness of the project that probably caught the eye of the senator's staff, definitely. Hmm. But what this $3.2 million does is enable them to assuredly reach that first phase that they have to meet Mm -hmm. uh, according to their contract with the city of Sturgeon Bay. So by April, they needed to have the addition built in the public bathrooms and the first floor space open and ready for the public. Okay. So the total project is $6.3 million and they've raised close to 2 million so far. Okay. So as big as this award is, it still wouldn't get them to completely build out phase two, which is the second floor and the headspace. So bringing it up that way, but it certainly enables them to meet that deadline for next year for getting what they told the city of Sturgeon Bay that they're going to get done. So now you you look at that West Waterfront project, which has been 10, 12 years in the making, so much controversy around it. And now you have, I believe the, the Maritime Tower was awarded something like $1.7 million yeah. in that state granting cycle yes, right. um, last year. I don't remember what that total amount was. And then yep. the granary now getting $3.2 million. So you have almost $5 million in grants that have come back to that West Waterfront project now because of two very unique projects. So, you know, to the people who originally started with fighting for the granary, talking about how unique it was and how it could attract things, I mean, at, at a minimum, it has now attracted both that, that $2 million in donor funds, but also $3.2 million in federal funds, which is pretty remarkable because you're looking at a plot of land where the city had originally pledged to do about $3 million in work to support a private entity on mm. that property. And now you flip that around and now they've brought almost $5 million in grants 
to create a public entity. So Mm -hmm. it's pretty interesting to think of how that changed. And now the city can spend its money accentuating that potentially. Sure. um, I mean, it's just going to be there for the city now. I mean, without the city actually having to, you know, spend any taxpayer money on it. Right. It is this really amazing cultural I don't know, destination site, really, because it's so unique looking. And now, like in my mind, as somebody who's, you know, I I like history. I like the preservation of those kinds of buildings. But it also, to me, puts a little pressure on the people to make that the best possible thing. Because now you're taking not just your private dollars raised, but your public dollars raised. So it's like, this has got to be a centerpiece. This has got to be a, a great project mm-hmm. now, even more so than they may, maybe felt before. Right. Well, very exciting news to see that that money come back. And part of it is, you know, as a taxpayer, you, there's always that argument of, well, this isn't how it should be working. Like you said, it should be a more open process or are these the right places to put the money? But on the other side, you're like, well, if they're going to do this, you know, like the granary isn't going to stop the federal government from granting money. Mm. So you might as well get a piece of it. Right. And it's one of those types of things like, you, you know, you could stand on your morals and get nothing or, you, or. You, right. I mean, like, you know, there are 15 billion that w- that was given to states across the country, you know, mm-hmm. 7,200 earmarks. So you could say, all right, we don't want to be one of those states that gets any of this money. And, you know, going back to the earmarks question on a larger scale, it was earmarks were more or less banned or banned is the wrong word, maybe reconfigure. <laughs> or President Obama said that he would eliminated. never pass an appropriations package that had earmarks in it. So in 2011, they, they cut those out for about 10 years. And one of the arguments always in favor of earmarks is the idea that it would make senators and congressmen from both sides of the aisle do a little horse trading and come to compromise. And the idea being like, all right, we're not going to pass this bill, but hey, you know what? If I get that, if I can get that ten million dollars for this project in my state, or I think it's Richard Shelby, if I have that right, in Alabama, who's known for bringing billions upon billions back to Alabama for pet projects, but it helps get something passed. It helps something move forward. If you're like, well, I generally, but if you know, if you didn't have those that horse trading, maybe you'd just be like, I'm just going to stand my ground and I am not voting for your package, kind of thing. So that's the argument in favor of them. I don't know, I. I haven't thought about it enough to say whether I agree with that or not, but like that's one of the arguments that people would say this will get people to cooperate. And, you know, if you look at the last 10 years, the Senate certainly hasn't cooperated on much. So maybe there is something to that. But Yeah, well, and I don't know. I don't know what would be the argument against them necessarily. Now, I know that Senator Ron Johnson, he introduced an amendment trying to eliminate the earmarks. Mm-hmm. So in in his statement, you know, following the vote, I mean, that was not successful ultimately, but was that the Republican caucus does not, you know, actually support earmarks. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't really know why it would be a bad thing to have some money coming back to community projects from the federal government. And if he says they don't support it, I mean, they certainly take advantage of it, right? I mean, yeah, well, like Shelby sure. is a Republican. He's, one of the, he's known as the, the king of pork, sort of. But, you know, it's called pork barrel spending. The idea being that these are monies that come back for low priority or non-priority projects, at least on the federal level. And a lot of people would say it's wasteful spending. They are capped at 1% mm-hmm. of total 
spending. So that just happened. Though. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the reforms that they just put into place. I think that there was the landmark pork barrel project, I think is in Ketchikan, I want to say in Alaska, mm. where they built basically a, or funded a bridge to nowhere. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. The so Ted I, Stevens one. Yeah. yeah. So I think that with the reforms that they have in place with the caps and there were a couple of other things that they measures that they put in, you know, then it would prevent something like that happening. I mean, that kind of wasteful, you know, spending. I mean, we know because we're getting a fire truck and, you know, part of a cultural, agricultural, historic building, you know, kind of renovated, then we know what that money is going toward and we're not saying it's wasteful. So with that kind of oversight, maybe it's, it's not, as harmful or right. yeah, not as objectionable at least. This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by Door County Medical Center. Are you looking for a job in Door County with excellent benefits, culture, and potential for advancement through tuition reimbursement programs? Door County Medical Center is hiring. For more than 75 years, Door County Medical Center has been the leader in health and wellness for Door and Kewanee counties. Their integrated medical center provides a wide range of specialties, including primary care, behavioral health, general surgery, the Women and Children's Center, the Door Orthopedic Center, the Door County Cancer Center, and more. To join the team, apply today at dcmedical.org careers. Well, I promised your voice I wouldn't drag this on too long, <laughs> so we're going to move on to the next topic. And uh, hopefully, you, you, no coughing so far. This is a great, Deb. Yeah, as long as I as long as I keep it down, we just don't <laughs> want to get it started. Another big funding project. This one more of a true granting program than the previous one. The Destination Door County has announced a new program that really could be transformative for a lot of municipalities and nonprofits and just general community projects that we've talked about for years. The new Community Investment Fund will grant one point eight million dollars to worthy projects over several quarterly rounds of granting, Mm -hmm. correct? You sat down with the folks from Destination Door County and the Door County Community Foundation that have been working together on this. Tell us what this new granting program is all about. All right. So the Community Investment Grant Program, which they just launched literally today, is a portion of the funds that Destination Door County gets through the lodging tax. They are putting aside and granting to community projects. It took them a little while to come up with this program. A long time. Yeah, (laughs) quite a while. Um, About nine months, I want to say, of conversations. And the Dora County Community Foundation is going to be administering the grant program. So basically, they will be putting aside about a million dollars a year. So they have $1.8 in that fund right now, but they only plan to grant a million annually. Okay. So four times a year, they will be able to apply for these grants. And the big component of this is that lodging tax revenue does need to go toward things that support tourism. However, they are also requiring that any of these projects also support local communities. So it is not enough if you have a project that you'd like to do and it hits the benchmarks for meeting the serving tourist amenities, it also has to be something that will benefit locals, and it has to show easily and demonstrably that it would actually have 
a positive impact on the quality of life for local residents. Okay. So but still have that tourism component. But still have that so, tourism component. So right. it couldn't be, you know, mental health services necessarily, at, you know, to support that. That's not right. going to fly with this. So it's not like a anything at all possible. But what are some examples of not, not things that have been applied for, but like what no. kind of things have been talked about as these kind of ballpark things could qualify? Public spaces, public parks, public lavatories, hiking trails, things that people would be using when they came to visit Door County, but things that local residents can use all year round. So any of those very visible public space types of projects would be probably an easy grant to give. But then there are others that that will also be considered because they came up with five different benchmarks that they want these grant applicants to hit. And a couple of them have to do with collaboration. So they really want to encourage municipalities to collaborate with each other and to do projects that have multi-jurisdictional impact. So you might think of a bike path. You know, for something like that, it's going to traverse through several different municipalities, all of the residents of, you know, all of those municipalities and all of the county would benefit from that. So there really are very targeted principles that are attached to this grant to try and help grant applicants, you know, craft the kind of project that they're looking for. So if you're... You know, not to say that anything would be exclusionary, but hearing that, I'd say like, all right, if you want to build a new pavilion at a specific park, that is going to fall. It's it's not that it wouldn't qualify. It's just that, but if somebody else said, I'm going to build a path connecting these two communities or, you know, something larger on that scale or public transit that's going to connect communities, something like that, I, I'm just spitballing. But like that probably is going to take precedence over a very specific, like small park in the, you know, the depths of Liberty Grove or something. Right. Like that. I mean, and, and they do say that in the grant that the more of these five principles that it hits, then the, the greater the likelihood that it will be funded. Hmm. Now they're really anticipating that they're going to be getting an average grant request of a hundred thousand dollars. So they're looking for big things. They're looking for big things, but they're also wanting people to, you know, send in the five to $50,000 yeah. projects. So they really want to be able to hit small and large projects across the board. And, you know, I should clarify that. Cause I say looking for big things. Big thing, big impact doesn't necessarily mean big the most money. Yeah, you know, there right. are there are great businesses, there are great projects that five thousand dollars impacts a ton of people if it's done the right way and used the right way. So I, right, and that is what they're hoping you know to see with the number of these grant applications. Now these applications will go to the Door County Community Foundation, and they have a committee that, well, first the community foundation will vet them to make sure that they are statutorily okay because they do have to still meet that statutory requirement that it is being used for tourist amenities. Once it does pass that vetting process, then it goes to a committee that the foundation has to review all of the applicants. There is no match that a grant applicant needs to indicate that it has, though, if it's leveraging additional dollars, that's one of the benchmarks. And there is no limit to how many times a community can apply for a grant. 
So it's only one grant per quarterly cycle. But if you're a community that wants to submit a grant every quarter, you can. Yeah. So it's it's really opening it up. They didn't put too many parameters on it because they want to see what kinds of creative projects people come in with. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the idea behind it kind of goes back to what my business partner, your boss, Dave Elliott, had in mind when he started pushing for a larger room tax. It wasn't to say we need to market more and bring more people, although that's what a lot of people think of when they see it. But he saw an opportunity to use those dollars in a different way than just pure marketing. Sure. And historically, and for good reason, Door County had used tourism dollars solely to put heads in beds because it all started when we were desperate to get heads in beds. We needed that money. And it seems impossible to some people, especially those who've come here lately, that that was ever the case. But it, it really was a desperate situation. But now we have those heads. And I don't think there's many people up here saying, I want more. Mm-hmm. So we have this extra money. Why just waste it trying to get more when we can, we don't even have the people to serve them? So why not do this to make their experience better, but also make our lives better? Let's let's right. bring it, that, that whole question of people who think that tourism is just a burden on them. Like this is a way to make that tourism pay off for all of us. And that has to show like that this was paid for with lodging tax dollars so that people slowly begin to see that there is an economic advantage for tourism. There yeah. are a lot of people who will just say, no, I, I, you can say whatever you want about tourism and it being, you know, something that's good for this peninsula. I don't care. I don't like tourism. I don't, you know, want <laughs> tourists here. But these projects have to show that economic benefit, you yeah. know, in something that is concrete. And when you, you know, talk about, Dave Elliott and and his push to increase the room tax, when he was talking about that in 2020, and it seemed, I don't know, what, five years, Miles, that it took before that actually concluded. (laughs) It felt like decades in here anyway. Right. So it started in 2020, but he always talked about a new marketing model. And in that new marketing model, would not just funnel all of the lodging tax dollars into a marketing budget but would come back to the community. Now, more is going back to the municipalities, of course, because 30% of lodging tax goes to municipalities. And right now, we're in 2022, is record collection of lodging taxes, in part because it did increase. But Dave Elliott always talked about that new marketing model once we got this passed so that we could start funneling it into the communities. And and this is really an example of that. Now, as awkward as it is to be writing a story that your boss plays a pivotal role in, mm-hmm. you also can't deny that that happened. Yeah. You know, you can't say that, you know, this happened because of something else. It really was his vision to start yeah. with to try and get more of this money into municipalities, more of this money into communities more of this money into the things that will help sustain this peninsula into the future. Yeah. And one thing to give, a and I'm little... not just saying that because I want to raise Dave, <laughs> but that would help. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, it's one of those complications of being in a small town, right? You can't act like we're in some tower removed from the place we're covering. We're, we're involved in it. Dave has always made a big point of being involved. I've always been involved. You're involved in organizations. Like there's, there's going to be that crossover, you know, I, I talked to Nora Bly about this once. 
he was more of the, I need to be removed. I just need to complain and somebody else has to fix it for mm -hmm. me, for Dave, for yourself. I've just never been able to be that way. It's like, well, why would I stand on the sidelines and just criticize people who weren't fixing it without mm -hmm. being a part, you know, sure. especially if you do have skills to lend to it. And Dave definitely does. So Norb, on the other hand, was like, I'm going to sit in my cabin and I will fire shots and see where they land. And, and that, but, but that's it. And that's a lot of journalism. That's a and lot that of was the model back then. I mean, yeah. journalism has changed. It has evolved into more of a solutions model. Yeah. So it used to be that you would just remain this objective person looking at what's happening and then indicating what's not working, yeah. you know, and not really coming up with alternatives other communities that are doing things, things that have worked. Solutions journalism is a model that has slowly evolved over the past decade. And really it's permeating almost everything that you read in major journalism these days. It's yeah. no longer responsible to just sit on the sidelines and shoot your, you know, slingshot <laughs> at people who are actually getting out there and doing things to make things happen. Yeah. It is far more responsible to take a look at what the problems are. Certainly, you must bring awareness to those. But then also the types of solutions that are being thought up by either local people or other communities. And you've done that, Miles. I've done that. We take a look at a lot of times in the podcast more than in print, you know, necessarily. But the model is moving forward to find solutions and yeah. not just Criticize. Not, yeah, not only. You have to do that because yep. awareness creates, well, awareness of the problems. Yeah. But yeah, helping to, to formulate the solutions to those problems. Well, one of these awkward moments, and not to get too in the weeds on this, we probably do a whole podcast about this for a journalism purpose, but you know, I'm covering the Sister Bay Marina discussion, and I've been around long enough now that you know, when I first started covering stuff or getting involved in the community, I was the new guy. I didn't have the perspective, you know, and now I'm the guy who's been around for 20 years and part of these discussions. So I look at the board and topics come up and people throw out stuff that I just know is factually wrong. As a reporter, you want to sit in the room and just observe and listen and ask questions. But sometimes you're like, okay, that just threw something that's not true onto the table. And now the conversation has shifted to, and it's all based around something that isn't accurate. Mm -hmm. And so you have, you have this discussion going, all right, do I intercede here and like make sure people know that that's not the case? In the Marina case, I was on the committee that originally started to develop the plan for the Sister Bay waterfront. I'm just one of many, like not integral. I was a token young guy, right? But I have that perspective. So is it responsible of me to just sit there and watch everybody argue or can I raise my hand and say, like, hey, just to clarify, here's what was done back then and here's why that happened. Right. But it's awkward as a reporter to interject. Yes. I think transparency is the most important thing. So certainly you don't want to sit there and listen to the conversation go off the rails when you know for a fact you can't actually report on what they're saying because it's not true. Yeah. So you either say it at that time or you have to deal with it in print. And nobody yeah. wants to throw people under the bus in that way. Yep. Like they don't know what they're talking about. I mean, you have the context. You, experience matters. Context matters. Right. So to be able to bring that to bear on your reporting is, I think, very important. And as long as, you know, we're transparent about that, then I, I don't see a problem the way in an old journalism model 
you may used to have a problem. Yeah. You yeah. would never, I mean, it was anathema when I was first starting in this business for me to raise my hand and say, um, yeah. I think that that's not quite right. You know, I mean, that just would, I was supposed to just observe and let things happen as they may happen. You can't and do that. And then make that. someone look stupid in print. <laughs> well, I mean, For something that's, that they didn't know they had wrong, you know, sometimes. Exactly. You know? So, I mean, it is far more of a, I'm not going to say that it's collaborative because it's not essentially collaborative. I mean, we still are reporting, you know, what we're reporting about what happened at the meeting. But in order to be able to help our communities find the solutions that they're seeking, then we we should not withhold the information and knowledge that we have, the institutional knowledge we have yeah. about our communities. If we can't contribute in that way, nobody else can. Yeah. Because we are the ones in the room all the time in certain communities. We are the ones that are monitoring them. We know the issues. Mm-hmm. There are other people that do not. Why would we withhold that kind yeah. of information? For example, like in the time since that original plan for the marina, that this a very specific thing that was thrown on the table, but like in the time since 2007, I think Sister Bay has probably had four village presidents, mm-hmm. four administrators plus interim administrators plus a huge gap without them. You know, multiple different marina managers, and the plans have changed. They've had a couple of different plans in that time, and you know, in some cases, okay, all those other people have changed many times and you find yourself suddenly for me, I'm like, Oh crap, I'm not the young kid anymore. I'm the constant. I'm the one who's, sure. who's, who's seen that evolution of it. Damn it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> then you go, now I have responsibility. It reminds me when Paul Anschutz said, she looked around and goes, Oh crap. I'm the adult in the room. I'm the one who's supposed to do something. I can't just like tell my parents' generation to fix that. Anymore. Right. So there's a little bit of that, you know, a, a, an example of this that came up once when I was covering a town of Gibraltar meeting. And it was some obscure town sewer and water discussion. And they were talking all about like how they might run the sewer and water through the fish Creek, the literal Creek Mm. and up the bluff. And a gentleman sitting next to me, which who I won't name, he's leaning over and whispering to me and he keeps saying like, Oh, we discussed this all like 18 years ago. And we found out this wouldn't work because of this. Or if we did it, we'd have to do this and it would cost this much. And he's whispering this all to me. Like you should, you should pipe up and say that. Like then he refers to, yeah, we have a whole. There's a whole report on file. It's in the office. It's it's like 24 pages or something. Like, pipe up. He goes, oh no, this is too much fun to watch. <laughs> he, he liked watching them all argue so much that he wouldn't clarify. I'm like, oh, this is why I'm sitting in this meeting for right, seven hours. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, and that is, uh, you know, that's like. The, the old joke, they, there would be no such thing as like a housing study, for instance, if people remembered that they had just done one five years ago. <laughs> I mean, so yeah. that, I mean, that, that is a thing, the study-itis. I mean, with every new administration, even in a local municipality, a couple of new people come on the board and they, you know, they come on because they, they want to help their communities. And so they've got all of their, these ideas and they never have actually watched a meeting prior to becoming yes. interested in running. So they don't know what has happened before and what has been tried and, and that there really aren't a lot of new ideas under the sun. It is mostly just people finally latching on and saying, okay, you know, and gaining support in yeah. a groundswell of support for it. So uh, the study, I guess you're right. I mean, Oh, we should study that. And you and me, having covered this for as long as we have now, you're just like, oh, no, don't do this. Yes, right. Oh, oh, you're going to do the $120,000 study to (laughs) restudy the $100,000 study from seven years ago and and come up with the same result. Like, 
even with broadband, and I understand that sometimes, and with housing, it, that study has helped to lay the issue bare for developers, for granting programs, for all these different reasons. So we can say here specifically the number of housing units we need. It's not just, hey, we're short on housing, which doesn't, which doesn't watch when you're looking for federal dollars or state dollars or any sort of support. I get that. There's some value in it. But take the broadband stuff. You're like, yeah, we all know our internet stinks. Like how much do you need to study it to, mm-hmm. to know that? But you can't, when you're looking for federal dollars, you have to have that, all that stuff done. So it's like, a, it's such a, sometimes it's frustrating because you're like, now we got to spend $600,000 to produce a piece of paper that says what we all know just mm-hmm. by trying to log on. <laughs> yeah, know? right. So. I mean, but it is, it is something as long as there is governmental funding, there needs to be accountability and studies yep. are the way to, you know. Because if you don't have that, somebody's going to take advantage of it and get money for something they didn't need. Like, like a bridge to the nowhere. the granary, right? <laughs> <laughs> As some people will say. Yeah. I don't think that, yeah, but, but some people, that's will, what say people that. will say Correct. Um, well, we went off the rails there a little bit about journalism and ethics. But it was fun. But that was fun. And I'm trying to just double check if there's anything we didn't cover about that granting program. There's a lot more detail to cover probably. Yes. And we'll probably have some of the, the key players involved in that in here on the podcast to go more in depth with it because I think a lot of organizations and citizens and municipalities will be very interested in in how to go about this and what might happen with it going forward. But have we covered all the high-level stuff with it? I'm pretty sure we have, but okay. only after I listen to the podcast do I realize that we <laughs> left, you know, a big chunk of something out. Yeah. But we'll find that out later. <laughs> all right. Well, with that, we'll leave people hanging. They can figure out more. They can point out what we didn't cover. We'll get some angry calls. Who knows? But Deb, thanks so much for cutting this out. We actually went 40 minutes, 10 minutes oh. longer than I promised you I would cut, cut this down to. And your voice held up. So thank it you very did. much. All right. You're welcome. Thank you. And thank you listeners for tuning in to the Door County Pulse podcast. Once again, we will be back with you again next week. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com slash shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.